Welcome back to the Reasonable Fan Podcast. Uh, this is going to be my first podcast of the uh, 2019-2020 Calgary Flames season. So I'm switching gears a little bit away from football since uh, we're now past the summer and football's still going on and I'll do another Stampeders podcast at some point. But uh, today I want to focus more on the Flames. And uh, I've been saving up some material for this one, obviously since it's been quite a busy summer uh, in the land of the Flames. Lots going on, so let's uh, let's get right to it. So the off season was probably one of the more interesting off seasons for the Flames uh, in recent memory, actually. Um, not so much from the free agency perspective, and it typically isn't, I guess, for the Flames. They're usually rather inactive and in free agency. They'd rather solve their problems in house than look elsewhere to solve their problems, uh, except for one outstanding item uh, obviously in in uh, the end of the season mike smith's contract with the flames came up and they chose not to re-sign him i had half a mind to think that they were going to re-sign him again just because it seems like the direction of the flames is to have david riddick as the the number one uh, goaltender for the foreseeable future so it kind of makes sense to have a guy like like mike smith around to sort of mentor him and be around for him although i get the feeling that he wasn't much interested in the kind of role he was going to be uh having with the flames given that riddick was probably going to get more of the number one starts than he was and mike smith's a very competitive guy as we all know so he left and signed in edmonton where he's just going to be in the exact same situation as he was with the flames last year except shittier because it's edmonton so, of course, that begged uh, a big question for the Flames. What exactly are they going to do about their second goaltender spot? Now, we know there are a number of goaltenders in the Flames system that um, could have been considered. Probably the one with the best chance was John Gillies, just by virtue of his tenureship with, with the team. However, his play doesn't really lend much confidence to the fact that he could be on the, the main team for this season. I think he still has some, some inner demons he has to work through and some consistency issues that he has to, has to solve. Um, one day he may be up with the Flames full-time, but I don't think it was ever really a serious consideration for them this year. Same with their other goaltenders too. Like Tyler Parsons isn't quite ready yet to come up. Um, they did sign that Russian goaltender, Artyom Zagadulin. Um, and potentially next year he could be one, but I think they, they thought that he probably would be a better fit in Stockton this year, and that's and is where he ended up anyways. But the Flames looked externally to a free agent in Cam Talbot. Now, Flames fans know Cam Talbot quite well. Um, he was a backup to Henrik Lundqvist in uh, New York, and he ended up going to Edmonton uh, a few years back. And his first season at Edmonton, he was outstanding. I think he was uh, in the consideration for the Vesna Trophy, led them to the playoffs, all that kind of stuff. He is a very good goaltender. However, in successive years after that one good season, he got absolutely torched almost every year and was ultimately traded from Edmonton to Philadelphia, where he played the majority of last year. And he was he was serviceable for Philadelphia. I don't think he did anything really all that spectacular, um, but he still showed signs of a very steady goaltender. And so the Flames decided to take a flyer on him, knowing full well that he would likely be platooning with David Riddick. Now, in my opinion, I really like this move. He's not coming in to be your number one goaltender, although he very much has the chance to win that spot. If Riddick falters and Talbot does well, then you could very much see those two switch around. But this allows for the, the immediate future plan of David Riddick being the number one goaltender to still come to life. And it also gives you a very good uh, backup plan if it doesn't, um, because he still is... I mean, we, we've seen David Riddick for a few years now. We more or less know what we're going to get out of him. I just still think that the consistency 
was a question for the Flames. And uh, through the first few games of the season here, I think we're, we're seeing that question being answered quite convincingly. He is a very good goaltender. But the thing is, so is Cam Talbot. So I'm excited to see him get some ice time. I want to see his, him play some games. I think he can do well for the Flames and the style that they play. Um, the Flames obviously have a stronger defensive core than Edmonton ever had. So that will obviously be a benefit for him. So I'm looking forward to seeing him in his first game as a Flame. Now, outside of the free agency market, um, the Flames had some in-house free agents that they had to take care of as well. And this was seemed to be the year of the restricted free agent for the Flames and for the NHL in general, to be honest. Lots of teams had very high-profile free agents coming up and, and we saw this whole process really dragged out and, in my opinion, kind of exposed. It's a little weird to me that somebody who's only played in the league for about three years could all of a sudden have so much clout with their team. And this was all really started with the William Nylander situation from last year about how he held out for so long with the lease before he finally signed in December. And I think that weighed a lot on the, the current players' minds, the ones who were free agents this year. They did not want to miss as much time as Nylander did because it really did affect his season. And even for the teams too, the more games that you miss into the season because the player's holding out, the heavier their cap hit's going to be when they do sign. And uh, it creates a really odd problem. Um, and it is, it's compounded by the fact that the player really has no leverage in this whole process besides holding out. And so you have a guy like Matthew Kachuk. You have guys like um, like Patrick Laine and Kyle Connor in Winnipeg. Uh, guys like Mitch Marner in uh, Toronto. Miko Rantanen in, in um, Colorado. Sebastian Ajo in Carolina, and there's a whole bunch more other than that. Brock Besser was another one, too. These guys are all key contributors to their team, but they're only 22, 23 years old, and they've only been in the league for three years, but uh, they have no leverage. So it created an interesting atmosphere for all of these teams, and one that was very much interdependent on each other. Now, what's interesting here is that they talk so much about a market being established for these players, and well, I think that's true for a, a few of them. I think Matthew Kachuk was in a really unique pers- in a unique spot because, uh, A, I don't think he's quite like other players from a personality perspective. I think he gets the overall like idea of a team. <laughs> and that's not to slag on other, on other players, but I think he is that cerebral, that he, he knows where his role is. And he also knows what his value is, more importantly, obviously. But some guys, I think, just look out for the paycheck. Others want to look out for the team. And I very much think Kachuk was looking out for a, a mixture of both. But my point is, is that I don't think that the market being established was ever really a factor for Matthew Kachuk, not the same way that it would be for Miko Rantanen um, or even Patrick Laine, Kyle, Kyle Connor, those kinds of guys. It really seemed like the shoe that had to drop was the Mitch Marner contract. I think the, the assumption was that he was the best of the RFAs that were out there, which is an interesting thing to say, seeing as though he's arguably the third best player on that team. Um, but then you have Braden Point, who's very similar to Mitch Marner and Brock, Brock Besser, that kind of stuff. But Matthew Kachuk's not quite that kind of player. Yes, he puts up a lot of points, but he brings a lot more of an intangible aspect to the team than maybe some of those other players would. I think for him, the process was more around, um, A, how are the other teams fitting these players into their salary cap and into their teams? What's the structure of their deal? Not so much what the dollars and cents are, but what's the structure looking like? And in the end, that's pretty much what ended up happening. I don't think that the value of the contract for Matthew Kachuk was ever that much in question. I think 
what he ended up signing for, which is basically $7 million a year, uh, or maybe a little bit more, I can't quite remember, but the final year paying him $9 million, and that's his qualifying value. I think $9 million was essentially what Matthew Kachuk was looking for out of his contract. And if the Flames were actually able to fit that into their salary cap, then they probably would have done it over a long-term deal. But because the Flames are ready to compete now, the writing was basically on the wall that if Matthew Kachuk wanted to sign for what he thought that he was worth, and quite honestly, he is worth that, especially like now for sure he is, and in three years he definitely will be, the Flames were going to have to mortgage their team. Um, so that means they were going to have to get rid of guys like Michael Froelich, TJ Brody, Mark Jankowski. There would have been other guys that would have had to leave the team in order to uh, retain Kachuk, and that would have made the Flames arguably worse. Um, obviously, I wasn't much in favor of keeping Brody or Froelich on the team, um, but you can't deny the fact that it's really hard to replace those two guys with ones who could, I guess, for a lesser value, bring the same... Uh, output that those two guys did. So anyways, Matthew Kachuk made the decision to take less for less time and win now, which I think is an excellent idea. And in three years time, I think the structure of the salary cap and even well, for the Flames and for the NHL will be much different. Matthew Kachuk will get his money. I think he understood that. It was a great, uh, great play. There was never any fear that he wasn't going to sign. Um, I don't think he had any idea to, to go anywhere else, and neither did any of the RFAs, to be honest. But I also don't think that the Marner signing had anything to do with Kachuk signing. I actually think the Braden Point deal had a lot more to do with Kachuk signing because Braden Point was in a very similar situation in Tampa Bay. The whole win now mentality, the whole, we have a whole bunch of other dudes that need to get paid too. Um, do you want to win with this or do you want to be selfish kind of question. Um, so once Point signed for the similarly structured deal, Kachuk wasn't far behind. Obviously, Matthew Kachuk was able to do this because he had some clout on the team. Dude scored like 35 goals and a ton of points last year. Um, not to mention he's pretty much the heir apparent to Mark Giordano's captaincy. So the, the guy's important to this team, important to this city. So they had to lock him up and keep him happy. What doesn't make sense is when a guy holds out over relatively pennies. I'm talking about Andrew Mangiapane. Now, I like Andrew Mangiapane. I think he is a very good role player for the Flames and somebody who's in improving with every single game that he plays. However, he was qualified at his salary from last year, which was like $750,000, and he held out for the summer. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. You have a guy, Matthew Kachuk, who originally on his rookie contract because he was a first-round pick was making $925,000 a year. And he now is making around $7 million. I mean, the, the level of play is different there between the two, especially since Manjapani didn't see a regular uh, spot on the Flames until about halfway through last year. So what the hell are you doing holding out for? What's your leverage? Like you try and hold out, and the team just laughs in your face, like, okay, like I can find a million Andrew Manjapanis on the street to take over for you if you don't want to play for this team. It was a really odd situation to see him hold out like that. Now, obviously... It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have because <laughs> we're talking about a lot of money here. And if it were me, the difference between $700,000 and $850,000 is massive. Like that is, like, I'm, honestly, I couldn't even quantify that in, in my own day-to-day -day life, what that would mean to me to have that, that much money. And that's probably what he and his family were thinking too. We're like, Jesus Christ, we're leaving $150,000 on the table. Like, this is crazy. The thing is, Andrew Mangiapane, throughout the course of his career, stands to gain far more than $150,000. So 
the short-term gain was definitely not good for him long-term. And ultimately, I think you saw that. He ended up signing for basically what he was qualified at for a single year, which was the right move for him. Because this season, he stands to play 82 games with the Flames. And he's a guy who could, if he plays his cards right, be a very integral part of this team. So it's one of those uh, Fred Van Vliet bet on yourself uh, kind of ideas for this contract. And I'm, I'm glad that he was able to sign more or less at the beginning of training camp. And we'll see what happens for him this year. There are other RFAs that need to be signed, of course, too, but not really that many of note. Most of them were, were stocked in regulars. But David Riddick, of course, was one who did sign for a solid amount of money. He was, I think, north of $4 million for a couple of years, which is perfect for him. Really low risk for the team. Um, it's pretty much what he's valued at at, the t at this time. And um, I think it's, it's just the perfect fit for them right now. It's, it's just low risk, high reward, uh, all that kind of stuff. Now, the... Juicy stuff from the offseason. I guess for dramatic effect, I didn't talk about it right off the bat when we were talking about ex-Oilers. Um, but in the, <laughs> in the context of bringing in shit players from shit teams, the Flames traded James Neal one for one for Milan Lucic. And it caused all kinds of ruckus, obviously, when this happened. Again, because we get to see the Oilers so much here in Calgary. And Lucic was like the laughing stock of that team for every year that he was playing there. When they traded Taylor Hall, everyone here said, what the hell are you doing? When they signed Lucic and claimed that he was going to be the replacement for Taylor Hall, everyone said, like, laughed them out of the building. What the hell are you doing? And he lived up to the billing of being a shit player for that team. I'm not saying that Lucic is a shit player, but man, he did not have good years for the Edmonton Oilers at all. In contrast, James Neal had a horrid year for the Flames last year. And I think everybody assumed that he was going to have a bounce back year this year. The way that he played last year absolutely made no sense for the quality of player that he is leading many to believe that he there were other issues going on for him and the flames internally than just his play i think he's a proud dude i think he was pissed off that he wasn't able to play top line minutes for the flames i think he was very uncomfortable with the fact that bill peters regularly challenged him and it's interesting that you could kind of i mean this is me just postulating obviously but you could kind of see egos in players come out in situations like that james neal's a guy who's been who's been fed on a silver platter, minutes, power play time, everywhere he's gone. And to his credit, he's delivered everywhere, everywhere he's gone too. But I feel like the challenge laid down for him last year was a little bit unique, and I don't think he responded to it very well at all. I get the feeling that he was upset that the fact that he had to work for all this stuff, that he was coming in expecting to play top-line minutes with, with Monaghan and Goudreau, only to see Elias Lindholm come onto the team and get put on that, on that spot anyways, which was the right decision for the Flames, in all fairness. So anyway, come the end of the season, while it would have been nice to see another season with the Flames for James Neal, I don't think that that was actually a realistic possibility. I think he was just completely done with the team, and I think the team was honestly done with him. Given the way that the trade went down, the Flames are actually retaining, or under, sorry, the, the Oilers are retaining a little bit of salary for Lucic, but it's a very much one-for-one -one deal. Like, no one's doing anybody any favors here. It's, they were very much swapping a problem for a problem. A problem in Lucic for someone who never lived up to what they expected and getting paid too much to do it in Edmonton. And a problem in Neil for somebody who was just toxic for the rest of the team. A guy who didn't want to live up to what they were expecting for him. I think, I truly believe, that Lucic wants to be better than what he showed in Edmonton, and I think he will be for the Flames as well. The benefit that he has here is that there's no expectation for him anymore. We know what his lowest point is. 
And his only goal, his only marker for success is to not be that again. And honestly, I think he can do that for the Flames. You put him into a third line role. um, You don't really expect him to score very much. You expect him to be a good teammate, to be a good leader. And that's it. I think he can thrive under those conditions. He will not score 30 goals. James Neal might. He very well might score 30 goals for the Oilers this year, but we shouldn't be upset about that because it was a problem that needed to go away and it wasn't going, he was not going to score 30 goals for the Flames. I can tell you that right now. Of course, in the uh, trade department, there was also some trades that did not happen. And there was one major one that was leaked in the end that I, I am kind of sad that it didn't happen in a way. This was before Matthew Kuchuk, Kuchuk signed, of course, but it was an attempt to make the Flames a little bit grittier. And this was before Lucic was acquired as well. Uh, this was a trade with the Toronto Maple Leafs that would have seen Nazem Kadri and I think Connor Brown as well coming back, uh, coming to Calgary for uh, TJ Brody and possibly Mark Jankowski. Maybe Oliver Shillington tossed in there too, some draft picks, whatever. It would have been a massive trade. And at face value, you can see why the Flames would have done something like this. You have a plethora of great defensemen in Calgary. Brody's kind of uh, expendable and a little bit expensive when you assume that somebody like Yusuf Alamaki could do the exact same thing that he does for far cheaper at this point in time. In the future, probably not, but at this point in time, it would be cheaper. Now, Kadri wanted to stay in Toronto, and so he used his uh, no-trade clause in his contract to his benefit to try and stay in Toronto, and he nixed that trade, which is really sad because I think he would have been like the perfect 2-3 uh, kind of center for the Flames. He's got an edge, he's a physical player, and he's kind of in the same age range that the Flames want to sit in, and that would have been a perfect fit for the Flames, but unfortunately it didn't go through. Hilariously, Toronto didn't seem to care. They said, fuck you, Nazem Kadri. We're just going to trade you anyways. And they sent him to the Colorado Avalanche. Um, And so that's the end end of that story. It was really interesting to see how that went down. I would have been curious to see how it went down and then signing Kachuk afterwards. Clearly, you wouldn't have brought in Milan Lucic. So what would you have done with Neil? Uh, Lots of questions coming from that, but it was something that, uh, that obviously didn't happen. So that brings us to the team this year. And... I mean, right off the bat, at face value, it's pretty much the same team as last year, which is not a bad thing at all. The team last year was very successful. Um, Obviously, there were some talking points around um, various parts in the year, whether they would be successful or not. Obviously, some drama around the team that they tried to mitigate in the offseason. But it's pretty much the same the same roster. You lost Garnet Hathaway in free agency. You went to Washington. They weren't going to be able to afford to re-sign him anyways, so uh, good on him for getting paid. Uh, but they replaced him with someone like Milan Lucic, which is an interesting trade-off. Basically the same player. Milan Lucic is horribly slower, um, but pretty much played the same role for the Flames, so that's okay. Uh, they also signed in uh, as a, a, a camp tryout Tobias Reeder, and so he's someone who'll probably be in and out of the lineup, uh, probably switching spots with Austin Zarnik frequently. Um, which is a good addition to someone they don't have to pay very much and a guy who can be a good role player. Uh, Other than that, it's the same team. Now, given what happened last year and the fact that this is pretty much the same team as last year, the question has to be asked, are there higher expectations on this squad given what what happened last year? And if you remember what I said last year, especially about the Flames' success, all of that was just gravy. Every little bit of success that they had making the playoffs, even though they lost in the playoffs, winning the the Pacific Division, all of that was just bonus because nobody expected them to do that. However, now that they've done that, the expectations are naturally higher. You can't just go for gravy anymore. You need to cook the whole meal. So 
the expectations for the Flames, I think, are to be a top three team in their division. If they finish anywhere one, two, three, I would call that a successful year uh, for the Flames. They need to make the playoffs quite clearly. If they don't, don't make the playoffs, that's a failure. I also think that in order to define the, this season as a success, they need to win a series in the playoffs. Everyone was very disappointed with what happened with Colorado last year, and for good reason. The team showed so much promise during the season, and they were so dominant during stretches of the season that to see them fizzle out with barely a whimper was really disappointing for a lot of people. Even though it could have been seen as a bonus, it was still disappointing because this team deserves so much better. They, des- they deserve the chance to work for so much better. That's probably a better way, to, better way to put that. Anyways, I can only hope that they learned a lot from last season, both during the regular season and in the playoffs, and they can translate that into some proper success for, for this year. There's a lot of things they need to work on. Um, they did get grittier. Um, I wouldn't say they added much skill, but they already have skill in spades anyways. But consistency is key, and that means consistency both from last year to this year and this year game to game. So... I'm excited to see what happens. I hope you are too. Um, I'll be back with another podcast pretty shortly. It's going to be back to back for me. Really crazy, I know, but I got lots of ideas. I'm pretty excited for how this season goes. As always, thanks for listening and uh, go Flames, go. Go Flames, go.